all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm not in the studio this morning, so there won't be phone calls, but you can always email us fit at mpbonline.org. With me is Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell. Good morning, Josie. When you're out of the studio, we like to take advantage of that by kind of re uh, t- uh, going through again some subjects that are our favorite subjects that we like to talk about. And one thing that's important and is one of your favorite mm-hmm. subjects, and that's what we're talking about today, and that is sleep. Yes. So let's uh, start off simply enough. Why do we need sleep? Well, you know, sleep is one of the foundations of health. So when we talk about um, lifestyle and health, there are different pillars upon which you build that good health. And sleep is one of those. But I would argue that it's the foundation, that it really is how you build a healthy lifestyle. Because if we're not sleeping well, there are so many things that get out out of whack, you know, just purely from an energy standpoint, if we're chronically not sleeping enough, our energy goes down. And that often leads to, you know, not being physically active because we feel so tired or not having the energy to, you know, cook or prep meals or, you know, just to expend the mental energy to plan and do those kinds of things. But, you know, from a physiology standpoint, there are so many different um, hormones that are controlled based off of our sleep-wake cycle and all these things, and they get messed up when we're not sleeping. So to answer your question, why do we need sleep? It drives everything. It drives our personality, it drives our behavior, and it drives our biochemical processes that either push us closer to health or push us farther away from it. So what's going on in our bodies when we are sleeping? Well, it's it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of topic to talk about because historically we've kind of seen sleep as just the absence of wakefulness, right? Like it's just this passive thing because we're not aware of what's going on while we sleep. So historically people just kind of thought you went to sleep and nothing nothing happened while you were doing that. But there are so many different things that are occurring during sleep that we don't um, really give it credit for. And that can be things like um, processing our emotions and our fears. Like That happens during sleep. It can be um, where our muscles are able to rest and repair themselves and actually grow and get 
stronger. Um, it is relaxation of the blood vessels and giving our heart a little bit of a rest. Like your heart doesn't stop beating while you're sleeping, but there's not as much pressure going on um, and the blood vessels are able to relax and it just doesn't have to work quite as hard. Um, and then uh, learning actually happens. You may think, how are you learning while you're sleeping? And it's not that you're learning while you're sleeping. You are um, filing away the things that you were exposed to and learned about during the day. You're you're moving those from short-term memory to long-term memory during during that process. So we just don't learn as well when we're not sleeping. So we uh, I hear a lot about stages of sleep. Mm-hmm. So if we could, let's go through those and kind of what's going on and, and how important they are. Yeah. So sleep stages are roughly grouped into what we call non-REM stages and then REM. Um, and so uh, non-REM is often abbreviated N-R-E-M. Um, and REM just rapid eye movement is what that stands for. So um, the non-rapid eye movement is further broken down into some other stages. Old staging had four stages in that. We've kind of smushed them together now. So non-REM is stage one, stage two, and stage three. And uh, stage one is that transition period. So the transition from wakefulness to sleep. It's... um, if you've ever like kind of fallen asleep on the couch, but still like heard what's going on, but you're not like fully aware. And if somebody said, hey, don't be going to sleep, you would argue with them. You'd be like, I ain't asleep. You're asleep. You're in the stage one um, sleep right there. Um, and stage two is where we start to see some changes in our physiology. So the core body temperature starts, so the the around your organs and on the inside starts to drop. Um, Your heart rate also starts to slow down during this period. Um, And it's still considered light sleep, but you're not really aware at this point. Um, In stage three non-REM, we start to see the muscles start to relax a lot more. Um, Blood pressure starts to go down here. Um, Breathing rate starts to get a little bit slower. And this is really kind of the deepest stage of sleep. We tend to think about REM being the deep stage, but it's just because we don't move around in REM. Your muscles are kind of... um, I don't want to use the word paralyzed because you could move, but you're not you're not doing a lot of tossing and turning at that point. You're pretty immobile during that point in time. The brain, on the other hand, is much more active during this phase. It's also one of the um, more common time that dreams occur is in REM. And again, that's rapid eye movement. And the eyes are moving um, around more in that particular area. Um, and we actually spend different amounts of time in each one of those stages in cycles. So it's not like you're in stage one, then you go to two, then you go to three, and then you go to REM for the rest of the night. They happen in cycles. So you spend, um, in the initial cycle, you spend about five to ten minutes in that it's kind of stage one um, period. Then you move on to stage two, which lasts somewhere around 20 minutes. Then you move on to three, which lasts you know a little bit longer than that. And then you move on into REM. Um, but you may go back and forth in there. So you may go one, two, one, two, three, two, three, <laughs> REM. Um, and so that complete cycle lasts about 90 minutes. Um, and so that's why you may have more than one dream um, a night um, and those types of things. But when our sleep patterns are interrupted, 
we either don't um, we, we don't spend enough time in each one of those stages. And just like I said, there's different things happening, right? There's different relaxations of the heart, different relaxations of the muscle and blood pressure going down. And so when we're interrupted, that doesn't get to happen. And so we don't get that restorative quality of sleep. You know, it's interesting to me, the, the rapid eye movement, it would seem like if your eyes are constantly going the whole time you're sleeping, that they that would wear them out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do we know why our eyes are involved in the sleep pattern? Um, you know, I don't know right off the top of my head why that, you know, why that is a thing um, and why your eyes are doing it and your muscles are um, are more relaxed, you know. Um, it, it does. And if you've ever watched somebody sleep and kind of seen their eyes moving behind their eyelids like that, it looks... It looks weird um, a little bit at first. That's also why it's really important. It's why we have eyelids, right? You know, because if you have um, any difficulty in closing your eyelids and you have that moving around, you could scratch things or injure things that way. Um, So it's really important that um, if we have dry eye syndrome and those types of things that we're getting re-wetting drops and things like that in there. And you mentioned the disruption. I think you were saying that the whole cycle is about an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. But so to me, I can see where disruptive sleep's a problem because if you kind of get halfway in and it gets disrupted, it, it resets, I guess. Yeah, you got to start back over. Um, and that depends on how like how awake you get. Right. Um, you're going to move back into that stage one sometimes and you may uh, you know be able to hear things and hear noises, but you may not kind of fully wake yourself up. But if you're getting up to go to the bathroom a couple times a night, I mean, you're interrupting, um, you know, interrupting those cycles. And if it takes you, you know, an hour to fall back asleep and then you kind of got to start back over with with entering those sleep cycles and they get kind of progressively longer as you go along, you just don't get the full benefit of the things that happen um, during that that cycle. It seems to me sometimes, especially early in the morning when it's almost time for me to get up, that you do get disrupted and then you kind of can't seem to get back into the because the restful sleep, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, any tips on if you're awake and your mind's going nuts to, to try to help you drift back off? Don't cut on the television or pick up your phone. Um, that's that's the number one thing. So um, one of the things that helps us move into these deeper stages of sleep and stay there is is melatonin, right? And so when we are exposed to light, it impedes the release of melatonin. And so our brain says, hey, it's awake time. We should be awake. And so, um, you know, picking up your phone will often not decrease your stress at all, especially if you open your emails and you get as many emails as I do um, early in the morning. Um, Or that light will start to stimulate your eye. Um, So find something quiet. You know, if you're not able to go right back to sleep, don't cut the TV on. Don't pick up your phone. Maybe a regular book with a low light. Um, if it's racing thoughts that are kind of, you know, keeping you up, keep a notepad and a pen beside the bed and jot those things down and what your plan for tackling those are. So we give we give stress and worry a lot of control over our thoughts and our behaviors. But if we because we're not giving them any closure, but if we say, you know, I'm worried about it's presentation today. Right then, and I just got back from a presentation. That's why I used it. Um, you know, do I have my slide deck? How am I going to be able to access that? Right. So I saved it in two different places, so it would be able to be open there. I'm going to get there 15 minutes early. Those kinds of things. You write your plan out, so it takes some of the 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 weight off of that worry. Uh, the thing that seems to wake me up is the uh, the cat. Yeah, they do that. <laughs> my sweet little one does. I, he woke up. He woke me up. Um, with a hairball the other <laughs> night, which is like, 
When you're a parent and your kid like gets sick in the middle of the night, like oftentimes you wake up to that noise. And now I wake up to the cat doing that, and it's almost the same like sensation. I'm like, oh gosh. Where is it happening? Right. Like how? No, don't throw up there. You know, so I, I get it. And pets can be disruptive and people uh, can be resistant to that. But if they're really significantly interrupting your sleep, um, you know, we may have to make alternative arrangements with where they sleep. You know, if you've got four dogs in the bed with you, we may we may need to get them some better beds and sleep next to you, but not in your bed. You know, I love my cat, but it's funny because we all know cats sleep 18 hours a day. Uh, I would so- like to be a cat when I grow up, if that could be arranged. It sounds wonderful. I always get mad. I'm just like, you're disturbing my sleep, and yet you're going to be and able to sleep right the whole And you're right back asleep. Right back asleep. So when he's napping and I come say hello to him or something, I don't feel bad about waking him Absolutely up Absolutely not. Payback. Good morning, Josie. Thanks for doing this. Uh, like I mentioned earlier in the show, when you're out of the uh, studio, we like to kind of review some of our more popular topics that we talk about on the show. And we are talking today about sleep. In the first segment, talked about how important it is, kind of what goes on uh, during sleep and some of the various stages of sleep. Um, I've often heard that during your life, uh, you need different amounts of sleep depending on how old you are. Is that true? It is true. It is true. And we talked about um, a cat before and how much cats sleep. And newborn Newborns are kind of cat-like, so (laughs) they need the most amount of sleep. So newborn babies, usually somewhere around 14 to 17 hours of sleep. And if you're a new parent, it seems like um, they never sleep, (laughs) but it's just you that is not sleeping. Um, They need about 14 to 17 hours of sleep. And, of course, it comes in in little... you know, little shorter increments. It's not 14 to 17 hours continuous on that. And that kind of declines as we um, as we age. Um, one that I want to make sure that we highlight is kind of your school age and teenage years, because um, those kiddos are, are chronically underslept. Um, in the school age, which school age is um, like your 6 to 13 year old kiddos, um, they need 9 to 11 hours uh, of sleep. So that's a, a still a fair amount of sleep there and then your teenagers somewhere around eight to ten hours so a kind of a good middle of the road is you know if you've got a kid in school somewhere around 10 hours of sleep is what they're needing to get um and so you got to think about how you balance all that with all the other competing things that are going on. When we look at adults, it's seven to nine hours is the sweet spot. And in particular with adults, when we look at people who get less than seven hours, they have more health issues. And when they get more than nine hours, they also have more health issues. So it's it's not one of those more is, is better situations. We want to have kind of this relatively stable seven to nine hour span. Do we know why we need the different amounts of sleep in different parts of our life? Yeah, I mean, it has to do with are we, what are we growing, right? So a newborn, if we think about sleep as being restorative and when growth things happen, then when we are in periods of more rapid growth, we're going to need more sleep in order to do that. So that's why that newborn phase, the infant phase is so important, but then also why you see a greater sleep need in in kiddos. So let's touch on that for just a minute. I know you're a parent. Um, and so I would imagine that sometimes it's difficult for to get kids to go to sleep when they really need to go to sleep mm-hmm. to get enough sleep in the in the night. What are your, are some strategies and things that parents might could use if 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 they're getting a little pushback? Routine, right? That is the 
and and we need it as adults too. And, you know, that is the other thing is we somehow just think that sleep magically happens, right? Like we just somehow are just going to fall asleep. And I mean, eventually you will, like you'll just chemicals will continue to build up in your system and you will just go to sleep. But good rest, restorative sleep um, doesn't happen by accident. And there needs to be some routine and some planning. Um, And it's best to start that early on so that you establish those patterns that you continue throughout your um, throughout your life. But when you've got little ones, you know, toddlers, it can be as easy as warm bath before bedtime um, and then, you know, snuggling down with a book that you read together. And that starts to kind of clue the kiddo in that it's it's sleepy time it's bedtime um and and kids this age crave consistency right but they also want some control this is where they start and you start to see more pushback because they're they're learning where they are in the world and what their role is and they like to control things and so they'll push back a little bit more it's we want to not have a battle so we want to give kids choices but the choice is not like go to sleep now or don't go to sleep now it's do you want to do a bath or a shower or do you want to do uh you know which book do you want to read um, which blanket do you want to take to bed what kind of pajamas um and so giving them some control there is often a way to to kind of head off the the head butts that you you get there um screens have dramatically um, altered our sleep patterns, you know, TVs and, and iPads and those kinds of things. And so setting timers on those is really helpful for sleep time as well. So um, at our house during the um, uh, at night, our internet on our kids TVs and cell phones and um, laptops and stuff goes off at 930 so they can't access that stuff afterwards so they know homework's got to be all done before then you got to get all you all your activities in before then because it's gonna it's gonna go off and it's not gonna go back on now thinking back to when I was a teenager <clears throat> I was <laughs> somewhat rebellious as a lot of teenagers that can would be. be a teenager uh, mm-hmm. and just a personal thing here. I realized later in life how important my parents were and how, what a great job right, they did. Right, I know. But in the moment, you don't. So maybe is there a little different strategies as, as kids get older to kind of keep that sleep thing going? Yeah, you know, it can be. The, the challenge that we have with kids now is they're so busy. You know, they they spend they have so many extracurricular activities and so many sports and practices and homework and those kinds of things. And so it's going to not be a one size fits all, but it is going to take some some intentionality in looking at the schedule, at, at what the things are you're doing and making sure that you can do those in a responsible way that's not going to impact their sleep. Now, I mean, I have a, a almost 15 year old who has a good 40 pounds on me and um you know, a couple of inches too. Like I'm not going to make him go to bed. <laughs> He's not going to get in the bed. But having good conversations about why it's important to sleep, and then setting their bedroom up for for rest um, is helpful. And so if they can't sleep, you know, giving them some restful activities to be able to do in there that don't involve screens is a good thing. Um, but just don't make it a battle because they're going to push back on you more when you when you make it a thing. And just continuing on the the parenting thing for just a bit. Yeah. Now on the opposite end, it's time to wake up. And again, sometimes there's so any kind of thoughts on helping the kids get their day started? Yeah. Again, it goes back to, you know, establishing that routine and trying as much as you can to keep that routine regardless of what your day's schedule is. You know, so 
a, a stable sleep wake cycle on the weekends is really important for maintaining healthy sleep. So we have the um, notion that we can stay up later on the weekends and sleep later in the mornings. And, uh, you know, a little bit here or there is fine, but we don't want to be sleeping until two o'clock in the afternoon because uh, then we're not going to go to sleep that night. And a weekend is only two days. As much as that pains me, a weekend is only two days and it is not time. You know, you don't have time to get get it reset back. So still, you know, maintaining a relatively um, you know early-ish wake-up time and consistent bedtime Um helps to kind of prevent that from happening. And I think this would be true of teenagers, kids, and also adults, that if your sleep cycle or schedule kind of gets out of whack and you start staying up way late and then getting up later, that kind of thing, it's hard to get it back into normal. It is. And we don't we don't want to shock the system too much, right? So if you've gotten completely off track, right, and you're staying up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, while ideally I want you to be asleep before midnight, I'm not going to take you from 3 o'clock to midnight overnight, right? Like, I'm usually going to ask you to back your sleep time up by, like, 30 minutes. So let's try and be asleep by by 2.30, right? And then as our body adapts to that, we just continue to march it back until we get to a goal of before midnight. So in the first segment, I threw my cat under the bus for waking me up, <laughs> but I got to give him credit now because I'm one that's not too much, but I do want to try to sleep a little bit later on the weekends, but he... He knows the sleep schedule of much better he does, than I do because it's a, it's attached to his belly. I would imagine. <laughs> You're right. It's like it's time to get up and get me eat. some food. Yes, and they are serious about that kind of thing. Mine will uh, just nudge nudge stuff off of any surface uh, when it's time for me to wake up, and then if I still don't, they come sit right on top of my face. You gotta love those little things. Yeah, mine does the same. The knocking the thing off. It's he he likes to do that, and it's amazing how it's always the same. Objects, but anyway, that's uh, that's for the creature comfort show on Thursdays. <laughs> so you did mention that um, some things it's not good that we don't get enough sleep. What are what are some of the things? I guess not having enough sleep can affect what's going on during the daytime. Yeah, it can. So uh, it can Im- Im- impair our learning. Of course, if we're sleepy and fatigued, we may not be paying attention as much as we should. So this is important for our kiddos. Also important for our adults. We're learning something every day. Should be. Um, but from a like a, a hard physiology standpoint, it really significantly impacts our heart health. Um, you know, I mentioned during those sleep stages that our blood pressure goes down, our heart rate goes down, our uh, breathing slows down. So if we're not sleeping, then those things don't happen as much as they should. And so our blood pressure can stay higher than we would like for it to, um, Our um, which then leads to, you know, um, increasing your risk for heart attacks and strokes, those kinds of things. Um, some of the other things that happen during sleep is um, processing of our fears and anxieties. And so if we're not sleeping, then we may be more anxious um, or, you know, feel more overwhelmed, have more of that kind of chronic worry that's going around there. Um, And then we've talked uh, before about the relationship between sleep and um, hunger and, you know, wanting to 
to be snackish, or my as my youngest calls it, peckish. He says I'm a bit peckish, um, and so when we don't sleep well, we're we're peckish, and we want um, to snack more. And it's never for apples and bananas and oranges. Um, some folks it's super sweet things, some folks it's salty things, some folks it's it's both on that, and the the kind of extra uh, kind of bad thing about that is that when we are not rested, we have deep decreased impulse control. So kind of almost like you're a little bit, a little bit drunk, right? Like everything sounds like a good idea. And uh, yes, I'll eat that. That's what happens. And so we when we see that donut, we're like, oh, that would be good. I'm going to eat it. And then we eat it. And so if, if we're trying to control blood sugar or weight or any of those different kinds of things, then it may kind of sabotage those efforts. Uh, one thing I wanted to follow up on sort of from our uh, conversation in the last segment, we were talking about how when you don't have enough sleep, you, you lose impulses and sometimes eat what you shouldn't eat and snacks and donuts and that sort of thing. But um, in terms of eating dinner, mm-hmm. I, it's interesting. I think Europeans especially seem to have a very late dinner where me, I like to eat dinner by you know, five thirty, six, seven o'clock at the latest. Any thoughts about a later dinner and how it might affect our health and our sleep? Yeah, it can. So one thing to to think about is their European meals are typically longer as well, and they're they're smaller. So they, um, in particular, like in France, the the lunch is like a, a bigger, more kind of drawn out thing, and dinner may be lighter. So while I would prefer people not to eat and go straight to bed, um, it, it's how heavy it is, how much salt content is uh, going on in that, that really starts to impair our ability to go to sleep. Now, in terms of uh, impacts on health, uh, if you're trying to lose weight, it's not a great idea to eat in particular, a large amount of calories right before bed um, because we burn a different number of calories while we're awake, just running our body versus while we're sleeping. And so if we eat, you know, a 800 calorie you know, quarter pounder right before bed and we go to sleep, we're not going to burn through those calories before it's time to wake up again the next morning and eat breakfast. So we're probably not going to lose weight if that's our strategy. Um, you know, in terms of timing, generally recommend, you know, about three hours before your bedtime is when you um, should have kind of that if you're going to have a traditional kind of dinner meal going on there. What? the Europeans do great, again, is the spread outness of their meals. So they take in less volume of things because it lasts for longer, as well as the social connection that usually goes on there. It's a very social affair. It's not in front of the TV, just woofing it down. It's, um, you know, and that's good for overall mental health and cardiovascular health. Also, I guess if you're eating heavy eating, spicy eating, it might lead to heartburn, which, again, I would certainly imagine is going to disrupt your sleep cycle as well. Absolutely. And alcohol. Um, So alcohol is often used used by people not correctly, but as a form of self-medication almost to help with sleep onset, right? Especially if you're stressed and you've got all those worries and everything keeping you up. Sometimes people will use alcohol to, to help with that. And it does help you fall asleep, but it causes interrupted sleep. So it interrupts those sleep stages and you actually usually wake up anxious and more stressed in the middle of the night from that. So it's, it's not a viable strategy for, for good sleep. 
I got to give you props because you've got your laptop that we're working <laughs> with uh, this this morning while we record this. And earlier, I asked the question about REM and what our eyes were doing and, mm-hmm. and why. And so you did a little research. For I us. did, and I am am pleased to say that there is um, debate going on. So I feel less bad about not knowing <laughs> the the answer because we. Even the experts don't fully agree on that. Um, But one of the more um, current theories of what's going on is that it's actually your eyes trying to focus and respond to visual things that you may be seeing during the dream. Um, And so uh, sleep research is to the level of dreams and those types of things is harder to do because we're not in your head, right? Regardless of things you see on the movies, there's not any kind of tracker I can put in you that I can actually get in and see what you're dreaming and see those things that are going on um, right now. But we do know that there are different parts of the brain that are kind of not really a quote, not really awake, but are functioning like you're awake and the visual cortex seems to be doing that during REM. So it's very cool and very interesting, and I will continue to fall down that rabbit hole as I learn more about what's going on there. Well, I hope that uh, it doesn't keep you up tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will set my timer and limit it. All right. So, uh, a, a term that uh, you hear a lot that we'll talk a little bit about is sleep hygiene. What mm-hmm. do we mean when we say that? And I, you know, it, it is the term that's out there, but I think it's a relatively confusing term because it makes it sound like any other way to sleep is dirty, and that's that's not the case. But in essence, it is kind of cleaning up your your sleep routine. But when we use the word sleep hygiene, really it's just a set of things to set you up for success for sleep, right? And so I've talked a lot on this show about the, the role of light in sleep. And so one of the first things for sleep hygiene is a dark room. And that has to do with the fact that our brain recognizes light and that tells us whether we're supposed to be awake or asleep, right? That's why when everything's working normally during the daytime, you are up and you don't just fall over asleep, right? Now, there are medical conditions that impair that. Um, And then at nighttime, when it's dark outside, most people are asleep, right? And that is because Um, Our internal clock, our circadian rhythm is set based on the presence of light. And before all of the technology that we have these days, we relied on the position of the sun, right? So we worked outside usually, and our brain was able to perceive the time of the day based on the position of the sun, right? It's brighter during the earlier parts of the day than as it you know, becomes noon, it's directly overhead and then starts to go down the other other side. And your, your smart little brain in there was able to tell that and you'd start to kind of wind down your day. And then as it got dark, you're like, okay, the work day is done. I'm going home. When you went in, there was not electricity everywhere. There were you know, candles that you took from room to room and these kinds of things. And so it was much easier to fall asleep. But now, I mean, we're sitting in a booth with, you know, fluorescent lights on overhead. I couldn't tell you what time it is right now if this little clock in front of me wasn't telling me. And that's how we spend the majority of our our life, really. You know, we, there's not as many of us that are outside working. We're in office buildings with, you know, lights all the time. We go home and we flip on all the lights in our house, we cut on the TV, we may have our computer up or our iPad, all these different kinds of things. And our poor little brain is just like, what the heck? I don't know what time it is. And so 
part of good sleep hygiene is trying to help our brain understand that it's becoming bedtime. So when you go home, you know, if the sun is going down, uh, you want to kind of try to mirror that inside. So maybe not all the lights on. You know, if you've got a dimmer switch, maybe start to dim it. If not, cut the big overhead lights off and use more task lighting and soft lighting. Um, you know, when you're getting closer to bedtime, you know, about an hour before bedtime, start to eliminate those screens um, so that you don't have that kind of extra light kind of bombarding your brain saying it's daytime. But that's just one one piece of sleep hygiene. There are numerous other ones, and they all have kind of the same physiological underpinning behind them. Um, so we often hear about the dark room, and then we hear about a cool room. And that's important as well, because if you think back to the first segment of the show, when we were talking about um, the different stages of sleep, in stage two, I talked about body temperature starting to drop, right? And so that's easier to do in a cool room, right? If you're in a 90-degree room, your internal body temperature is not going to drop. And so that's why when the air's out, you toss and turn all night long because you're not able to progress through those stages of sleep like you should. And so keeping the room cool helps with that core body temperature start to drop. And another thing that can help with that is warming of the extremities, right? Because the way our core body temperature cools is that our blood vessels in the skin dilate, right? So that we lose some of our heat that way. So that's why pajamas are a good idea. That's why, and people are very opinionated about this, but socks can help um, if you're having trouble falling asleep because it helps those vessels warm up. If you're very much against socks while you sleep, um, adding like a throw blanket down around the bottom part of the bed to kind of warm that up helps. So a cool room, but warm extremities. That's also why a warm shower helps because it helps to to vasodilate those, um, those vessels in the skin. So there's the cool room, there's the dark room, there's the quiet room, so noise as well. Now, some people feel like they can't go to sleep when it's like stone cold quiet, and that's okay. Um, A white noise machine can be a good option there, especially if you have roommates or kids or cats um, that like to throw stuff around in the middle of the night, adding that white noise in or, um, you know, a a sound machine that plays a rainstorm or or whatever kind of helps drown out that background noise there as well. Um, Some of the other sleep hygiene things are, again, not eating dinner so close to bed, not having a lot of alcohol um, before bedtime. Uh, and then just establishing the routine that the bedroom is for sleep and sex. It is not for all the lounging all all the time. And so I work with a lot of patients that have chronic pain. And so they may be, um, you know, not working, they're home for most of the day, and they may spend the majority of their day in the bed and their sleep patterns are just all messed up. And so one of the strategies that we do is just getting them out of the bed, like they can go to the couch and you can lay on the couch um, during the day or a recliner or whatever is comfortable, but just getting out of the bedroom and moving into a different room so that when you go back to the bedroom, your brain's like, hey, I'm supposed to go to sleep when I'm in here. This is not for just all the other things going on out here. Uh, the one I like that helps me, which is kind of seems counterproductive, is the <clears throat> a box fan or a ceiling fan. Mm-hmm. The sound that it makes, and you would think, well, that's noise, but there's something. It's a I white guess, noise. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's a it's a very. Um, I'm sure it has to do with whatever, like. Uh, 
hertz frequency that it, it vibrates at or whatever, but it is very relaxing for a lot of people. And so whatever works, as long as it's not television. All right, Josie, the last segment of our show about sleep. And so we've mentioned dreams a couple of times throughout the hour. Uh, Do we know what role dreams play in our sleep and and why we have them? Well, you know, that one is up for debate hotly. Um, You know, there's kind of long been this kind of science behind dreams that's often based in psychology, right? And you'll have different um, psychological uh, frames of thought as to what dreams mean, right? And the jury's kind of still out on whether they actually mean anything. Um, You know, what we do know is that um, you dream, you just may not remember dreaming. Um, and that makes the study of dreams even harder because it's hard to study something when people don't necessarily remember what they dreamed about. And what I find really interesting is that how you can remember stuff about your dream right when you wake up, but even a couple of hours later, you you don't remember what happened during those dreams. Um, so if it's something that you're interested in exploring, you need to keep that pad and pencil by the bed and write those things down. Um, but there, you know, some people think that there's a role um, in particular with nightmares, with you know, stress, anxiety, trying to process fears, um, sleep disorders, those types of things. Um, but uh, the the process of learning and processing may be one of the things that's going on during sleep. So kind of storing those memories and you know learning new new skills that we've learned during the day may be what is kind of happening during that that dream state. And I've heard, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this one. I've heard that in in actual fact, our dreams are very short, but to us in our sleep, they seem to be much longer than they actually are. Oh yeah, are. absolutely. Well, you know, so when you think about dreams as you know primarily occurring in in REM, um, that first, you know, we talked about those sleep cycles and they get progressively longer. The first sleep cycle is ten minutes uh, for REM. You spend about ten minutes in REM, and you know, even the longest REM cycle is sixty minutes. So you know, you're you're not spending as as much epic time in your in your journey your fantastical journey that sometimes dreams are um are doing in there what's so interesting is some of the commonalities between dreams with folks you know most of us have had that falling sensation dream or um teeth falling out or being uh undressed in front of of groups so it's it's weird how our brains produce kind of these common experiences um in sleep and we don't necessarily know why and I think I shared this one one of our breaks here this morning, but I've um, I've become to where I'm, I guess aware because a lot of times if you're having a dream and then something happens like oh I'm my car is wrecked and I'm I don't know what to do, I I can almost say something like to myself oh wait it's just a dream and mm. I'll kind of wake up, and that's the other thing that's interesting I found that. Once once the dream ends and you are disturbed or whatever, you, you can't sort of jump back in and watch the oh, rest of the episode. you can't. I know. And sometimes it's like a good dream. You know, like you're super happy, maybe like munching on your favorite food or and it's and you want to go back to that that spot in that dream and you just can't. And that is very, very frustrating. I'm like, why would you wake me up? I was just to the good part. Like we were supposed to have some cupcakes in this dream. The other one, too, is. A recurring dream, not a lot, but one I've had a lot is something, and you're you're trying to walk or run or whatever, and you can. And, and is is it related to the fact that your your muscles and your legs are? Um, I don't think that that's necessarily connected, but that's a very common um, 
kind of trend through dreams is like not being able to carry out some task that you're trying to do, um, whether it be like trying to defend yourself if it's a, a nightmare, trying to run somewhere, um, those kinds of things. I had recurring, I still have it, where um, uh, I'm back in the hospital working as a, a bedside nurse and like I've forgotten to give medicines to somebody like all night long. That's never happened. Um, but it's like this this recurring dream that I have and I haven't worked as a bedside nurse in, in 10 years. You know, I'm like, why am I still dreaming about this? I am giving <laughs> these folks some medicine. I have ones where I worked at a restaurant when I was in college. And so one of the ones I've had kind of recurring is you've forgotten the order or something. Yeah. And again, it's one of those where you can thank when you wake up, you think, oh, my God, thank, like, it's, thank you know, goodness. I'm I not in high school that. anymore and I don't need to know my <laughs> locker combination. <laughs> do you remember your locker combination? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, we got about five or six minutes left. Um, and we touched on this earlier, but maybe some tips uh, to if we're having trouble falling mm-hmm. asleep, things that we might try. Yeah. And you know, I think you have to be real with yourself about what's keeping you from sleeping. So I found, I learned a new term yesterday and it just, a light bulb went off in my head. It was called revenge uh, bedtime procrastination. And I was like, what is that? And it is when people that have super busy schedules sacrifice sleep at the end of the day for entertainment because you haven't given your brain a rest during the day or your body because you're just running and doing kinds of things. And so at the end of the day, even though you know you should go to sleep, you, you're like have this fear of missing out on this relaxation time and this um, this entertainment piece. And so you watch YouTube or you watch TV or you know you stay up past the time that you should be asleep trying to capture this control over this little moment. And I realized like I do that. You know, like I'm so busy during the day that when I get home, I just kind of want to mindlessly do something for for a while. And learning that term just gave me the power to go, well, I got to stop this. Like, this is not, not healthy for me. And so, in, you know, intentional last night, I was like, I'm going to stop this at 10 o'clock. Like, I'm not going to watch anything else. I'm going to put it down. I was asleep within like 45 seconds. And I was much more rested today when I got up. So you have to... It's, it's going to be individual, and you have to look at, at each person. I can't recommend a sleep diary enough when you're having trouble falling asleep. Um, and you can go to, like, the National Science Foundation, and they have a, a sleep diary there that you can print out. And you fill out part of it um, in the morning. You fill out part of it at night. And um, it, it helps you to kind of pinpoint what might be keeping you from resting well, um, whether it be stress, whether it be pain, um, whether it be, you know, foods or caffeine, those kinds of things. Caffeine is another one. Now, everybody that listens to this show knows I love some coffee. Love me some coffee. But caffeine has a, what we call a really long half-life. And half-life is... Um, in the strictest sense of the word, half-life is how long it takes for half of something to be gone from your system. And that doesn't mean that the same amount of time the rest of it is gone. It means another half is gone. So when you have something with a really long half-life, it takes a really long time for it to get out of your system. And caffeine has a long half-life. So if you drink caffeine even at, you know, one or two o'clock in the afternoon, if you're trying to be asleep by, you know, eight or nine, you're still got a fair amount of caffeine in your system. So trying to keep caffeine before 
before noon is a good strategy for folks. And that doesn't mean you don't take your coffee break and, and, and you know, go and relax uh, if you get an afternoon break at work. Um, but don't choose a caffeinated beverage. It'd be a great time to get you some water in because you're probably a little dehydrated. Um, or, um, you know, a decaf um, tea, something like that, an herbal tea. And especially if you're having trouble at nighttime, um, don't go for... Um, you know, a green tea, it's got caffeine in it as well. You'd want to go for more of a like a straight herbal tea that doesn't have any caffeine. You know, earlier we talked about trying to get your sleep schedule and sort of staying to it. And I've found out that <clears throat> some nights it's like before my quote unquote bedtime or time I usually go to sleep, I start feeling a little bit tired. And some nights I'll say, all right, well, I'm going to go ahead and go to bed. That, those are the mornings I find when I have that thing where you're half asleep, half awake, and you don't feel like you're getting any mm-hmm. rest. So I found that if you stick to whatever schedule you've kind of established, that when I go to bed at my normal time, that the next morning I feel like I've had more restful sleep and I haven't had that thing where you kind of wake up and like, oh, gosh, now it's only an hour till I got my alarm mm-hmm. to go off and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So. It is. Your body craves consistency. It's all about that, whether it's the foods that you're eating, exercise or sleep. It wants a steady state of things. Okay, got about two minutes left. Yep. Let's talk briefly about naps. Oh, naps. Um, naps are one of those elusive things when you have children. Um, uh, they nap, but you don't get to nap. Um, and naps can be okay, but it's it's the duration of the nap. So we don't want to be napping for an hour, two hours, three hours, because that's going to completely throw off our ability to sleep later on. So if you want a nap, usually 20 minutes or so, like truly a little power nap is, is the best option. And and there's been some studies that have shown that improves kind of um, you know, mental clarity and function, especially in the afternoon after one of those kinds of naps. So it's not don't nap, but don't do extended long period naps. Keep them under, you know, absolutely under 30 minutes, but somewhere around 20. Um, and then if you happen to have sleep apnea and you need to wear a CPAP, you should be wearing your CPAP during your naps as well. I see a lot of folks that don't do that, and that is untreated sleep apnea. So we want to make sure we capitalize on that. And I would imagine, too, that all of the stuff we talked about, good sleep hygiene and all that, those apply when you're taking your naps as well. Absolutely. All right. That is going to wrap us up for today. Thanks for listening to the show. For Josie Bidwell, I'm Kevin Farrell. Remember, you can email the show anytime with your questions. It's fit at mpbonline.org. And tune in every Monday at 11 for Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.